0: Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Colossians, to the third chapter. We're kind of starting in verse 5, but it'll be about half a sermon before we fully get there. There is a marked shift, change, transition at this point in the letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, Everything up to here, has really been setting this foundation, this backdrop or background for this third and final major, significant, sizable section of the letter, which is dozens of commands describing the difference that Christ makes in the lives of those he makes his own. Interestingly while Christ has been named, mentioned by name, and then by pronouns, dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times up to this point in the letter, it only appears seven more times in the rest of the letter. That does not mean he isn't preeminently needed. It just means we have to keep growing and building off of the foundation for our obedience, off of the foundation of the first two-thirds of this letter. We, and herein lies the danger for us, when we pull commands out of the Bible and out of their context and simply use them, perhaps as weapons toward our children and perhaps with the best of intentions as well. But if we separate the commands from the who and the why and the how that scripture gives us, we eventually will get swallowed up by those commands. God does give strong commands. Opening one verse five is incredibly strong, daunting, but he always envelops those within his son and the gospel and his love, grace, and mercy. So two weeks ago, uh, I appreciate Jonathan filling in last week and taking us to the first thoughts of First John, we'll be back in First John later today, uh, but two weeks ago we saw this powerful foundation which really is a launching for the rest of what takes place. It's meant to both motivate us toward all these hard commands and empower us to obey them. So, just summarizing that little paragraph, Christ is all over in there, five times either by name or by pronoun. The reminder, if this significant act has happened, you've been raised with Christ spiritually from a spiritual deadness, and you've been given, born again, a new life in him. And if he's at the right hand of God the Father, which he is, interceding as well as reigning, and... If he is your life, which you have, if you have believed and trusted and repented, he is, and if your life is hidden with Christ in God, and if Christ is gonna appear again, and when he appears, you'll appear with him in glory, then the first two commands really of this list, seek the things above and set your mind on heavenly and not earthly things. All of these are culminating What's been emphasized throughout the letter of, for believers of Christ being in us and at the same time paradoxically us being in him that we are so joined and united by him, to him, and for him that it is to affect everything else about our lives. So if you're visiting today, you've missed all the foundations. So go back for the last four months of sermons, listen to them all, At least look at Colossians 1, 2, and the beginning of chapter 3 for the foundation of all that we're going to be talking about. David Garland summarizes these verses uh, well in this way. Believers live in the exalted Christ and he in them. Therefore, he calls them to live out in earthly structures So I just put a few of those, family, church, society, government, and relationships, all of our relationships. We are to live out the life of heaven that is within us. Christians are not called to escape the world, and that's certainly not what the first four verses of chapter 3 are emphasizing, but to be obedient to God within it. Allowing the transcendent, so above and outside of, dimension where Christ reigns to set the priorities for our lives. So brief recap, I've done this so many Sundays, I hope you wake up in the night and it's running through your head. But just to keep everything within our context, really from 1-1 through 2-5 was the exalting of who Christ is, what he has done. From creator to salvation and all kinds of other things, and God the Father through him. It portrays his worthiness, verse 18 of chapter one, his preeminence in everything, the necessity for him, chapter two, verse 10, the fullness of him in all things. Christ, 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 Christ. Then verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 6 is our first, therefore, shifting giving us this general, really, for the rest of the letter, command. All who have received him, all who have been given this incredible salvation, walk. That's the general command for everything that's going to be laid out. Walk or live by faith in a radically new and different way than you used to. We even here could go back to Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 10, where we see another walk. Walk, this is his prayer for the Colossian believers and for First Street Bible and all believers. Walk in a manner worthy, equal to the glory of the Lord. What a challenge. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So 2.6 sets that foundation. Then two six and 7. 2-8 to 23, the rest of chapter 2, are wrong ways to go about it. Three or four different warnings, things that will not work because all of them are focused on human solutions, on earthly things, on our own selves and our own wills and our own strength. And none of them will ultimately produce, as chapter two closes, the ability or the value, the strength to stop all indulgence of the flesh. So we might just summarize, and so then. Now we are turning to where God commands how we live for him. We could summarize this as say, having given sinners an incredible salvation in his son, God now calls all he saves to a great sanctification in Christ as well. E.D. Martin, these teachings constitute an inescapable call to make the ethics and I inserted, this is my own word, so changing the meaning somewhat of Martin's emphasis. But making the ethics or the nature of the Savior the ethics or the nature of the saved. So today we're going to just set some of this up, try to be, see some of the big picture. Uh, partly the English teacher in me just loves to try and show you. Uh, some of the connections and some of the ways that things are worded and outlined and put together by God in this letter that I just love uh, and about four of you do and the rest of you, thanks for coming along on the trip. But it's a big enough topic that I think it merits this bigger look because we're gonna look at so many of these individually we can lose as we deal with each tree, lose the forest uh, in light of that. Plus, This is hardly in Colossians 3, hardly all God calls us to obey, hardly all of the commands that he gives us. These are just samplings. This is a little uh, appetizer. This is the beginning of it. So there's all kinds of other things that I think if we have a good framework will help us in all obedience of all New Testament commands, not merely Colossians 3 and 4. So we'll start broadly, try and just look at how they're outlined. We'll narrow down to verses 9 and 10 for just a a bit because of that important dual action of stripping away and layering on. And then we'll begin about half of verse 5 for this Sunday if the Lord slows the clock down. I may not be telling you a thing you don't already know today. But it isn't the question, have you heard this before? The question is, Do you know these in a way that they are driving your life? Are you fully living them out to the extent that you should? So may God use today to strengthen our sanctification as well as the rest of Colossians 3. Heavenly Father, what you charge us to do here in Colossians is incredibly important. We acknowledge that. We in no way want to downplay this, but it's also tremendously daunting to us, Lord. It makes us cry out to you for two things in particular. Help, starting with helping us understand the gravity of the things you're talking about here and the power to obey it, and then it makes us cry out for mercy and forgiveness for all the ways in which we fail to live up to the glory of our great God, you. So please do a powerful purging in First Street Bible, in this minister, in each of your sons and daughters here, and transform us to be more like our beautiful and glorious Savior, we pray in his name and in his power. Amen. So Colossians 3, 5 through 46, big picture, triangle quickly, but just help give you some framework so your eyes don't just blur with... Man, we're jumping all over the place uh, with everything that God is telling us to do. I can't keep up with all of it. Now, I just want to highlight 9b, particularly after the do not lie, and 10. And really, 11 is a pretty uh, significant verse as well. And then verse 17 is kind of a capturing smack dab in the middle of all of it, a very overarching principle that whatever you do, whether it's word or deed, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But zeroing in, let's walk from beginning to end of these anywhere from 35 to 40 commands, uh, depending upon how you count them. First of all, this section in verses 5 through 9a, we might just call commands that every follower of Christ, really that goes through verse 17, commands that every follower, it doesn't matter, age, gender, anything else, must devote themselves to obeying. But it starts with the killing or the putting away. So verse five, put to death, and you could either count one thing here, because it's one command for five to six different things, or you can see them, as I do, as each almost individual and separate. Put to death what's earthly in you, and these five things particularly are given as examples, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Verse 8 circles back after a couple of commentaries in verses 6 and 7. To put away, and again, this is either one command or five, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Culminates really with a sixth thing to put away, but worded in a different way, do not lie. Then verses 9 and 10, verse 11, that sets up really verses 12 through 17, and here they roll out, again, put on. Now we're, these are ways that God wants to dress us and transform us and make us look more like his son. And he, again, either is commanding us one thing with five dimensions or I would argue five different things that he wants us to put on specifically. Compassion on hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Verse 13 is a participle. So bearing, which is really a descriptor of the things in verse 12, particularly patience. But because God identifies it, I'm pulling it out as a command. Uh, not all would agree that it is, but it's certainly something, a specific way in which God wants us to be patient with each other, bearing with each other, and then forgiving each other. Verse 14, again, put on, this time love. And then 15 and 16 have some lets. Uh, if you remember Chad's let us joke, let the peace of God rule and let the word of Christ dwell. But at the end of verse 15, and repeat it again in verse 16, and repeat it again in verse 17, we have a trilogy of calls to be thankful. And then also in verse 16, again, they're participles, so they're descriptors. But I think they work as either a combined compound, command, teach, and admonish, or teach, and then a specific aspect, admonish, and all wisdom, culminating in singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Verse 17, then, really capturing all of that, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. From there, God has Paul turn to specific genders, specific positions within the family, within the business world, uh, or society, And gives, in most cases, a specific command to those. Wives, the command to submit to your husbands. Husbands, in verse 19, the command to love your wives. And then in verse 20, the men get the do-nots as well here. Do not be harsh. Then children, obey your parents in everything. Fathers, men again, do not provoke your children. Then it turns to the workplace, bond servants, obey your earthly masters in everything. Verse 23, work heartily for the Lord. And then maybe the worst chapter break in the Bible, I don't know. You could argue that, but wow, who put this here? Like sniffed a little too much ink before he drew that line of here's a good chapter break. Really should come after verse 1. Verse 1, then continuing on with masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly. And then verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4, move back out to the general, to everyone, but maybe emphasize a little more how we walk among the lost. Steadfastly in prayer, verse 2. Verse 3, praying for open doors and clarity, verses 3 and 4. Verse 5, walking in wisdom, making the best use of the time. You could argue those are two commands or one capturing the other. And verse 6, I really think, too, let your speech be gracious, and then know how to you ought to answer each person. So, again, this is the huge difference that being united to Christ makes in followers of him in their everyday living. It can feel overwhelming, right? Like, how in the world? So we will try to drink them in slowly, so that they do work within us and have time to do so. But let me just, I just, 1 John 5, 3 is such a good reminder for me when I feel this like, God, you've given me the impossible, which He has done outside of Him. This is the love of God. This is how you love God. Keep His commandments. And I'm going to insert that John was really paraphrasing what he heard Jesus say at the Last Supper, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then John adds this second descriptor about the commands or commandments, that they're not burdensome. Many passages in scripture emphasize this same thought, but maybe nowhere as thoroughly and as vividly as Psalm 119. If you struggle with, God gives us hard things to do, read Psalm 119, all 176 verses. Because over and over and over, or just read a stanza each day, you just see all the glorious reasons, uh, blessings of God's law and why he's given them. God's commands direct us to know what honors him, direct us to know how to build our lives vastly differently than they used to be before we met Jesus They direct our every step so that we do what chapter 3, verse 17 says. We do everything in the name, in the representation, in the imaging of our Lord Jesus. They don't limit us. They don't deny us good things. They protect us from the bad and the very, very harmful things. All the way back to Genesis, that's what they've done. God's commands are never to be taken lightly, ignored, procrastinated about, forgotten, or done sloppily and carelessly. May God charge our hearts with these commands in the coming days. Now let's zoom in to verses 9 and 10, try and pick up the pace just a little bit here. That's, this is where we'll be soaking for the next two or three or maybe four months, a bit of an overview, and I think verses 9 and 10 kind of show us. So, nine functions as kind of the concluding thought of verses five through 9a, and then 10 functions as really a charge to the rest of the chapter. But almost in the same breath, we also hear God charging us in verse five, despite the realities we've already put off an old self, we've already put on the new self in Christ, despite that, we still are to put to death, verse eight, we are to put all away, Verse 12 and verse 15, we are to put on, put on. So it's a work that's been done in one sense that ignites a work that's still to be done in another sense. We've repented at salvation, God is saying. The course of our life has now moved from heading for self and the world and sin and perhaps Satan to now directed toward God, and the call is, go on repenting in these specific ways, each of them manifesting more the glory and transformation of Christ. God doesn't take us immediately to heaven when he saves us. He doesn't immediately and painlessly extract every bad thing or instill every good thing. God is a God of process. Yesterday at the conference, we heard a, the parable of the seed of the kingdom of God and it becomes a tree. But that seed becoming a tree from Jesus' day till now is 2,000 years old and it's still going before that full kingdom. So it is for our sanctification and our glorification as well. We're perfect in our standing before God in Christ, verse uh, 22 of chapter 1 said he presents us to God, holy and blameless and above reproach. We're already saints, chapter 1, verse 12, says we already get the full inheritance. This isn't about that, but as Ephesians 2.10 puts it, after we're saved by grace, not by works, we are his workmanship in salvation. We're created for good works, which God prepared for us that we should, and here's the word again, walk live within them. Our penalty for sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. Two scriptures that show us that very vividly, both by Paul, Romans 6.6 and Galatians 5.24. But the pattern of sin that we've had in our lives, the persistence of sin and the powerful pull of sin remains in us. That's why last week we sang, I am a sinner through and through. But we can also say, I am a saint through and through because of Christ. So there's this tension. God never allows our sinfulness, what's earthly in us yet, to be an excuse. But always charges us to go to war. I'm trying to say this a whole bunch of different ways. We rest in him and find full peace in him, and yet we go to war in him as well. We have been brought so far from God, and we still have, and maybe this is what most of us don't see clearly enough, how far to still go so many ways that God still wants to develop us that only comes through this long, slow process of being transformed bit by bit. The way Paul summarized that in 2 Corinthians 3:18 is we all with unveiled face God has taken the veil away and shown us through faith the glory of Christ and we behold it we're stunned by it the gospel in full blown glory is what transforms us ever degree by ever degree i would put forth to you hundreds of millions of degrees toward the likeness of our Christ. And all of that has to be from the Lord and from the Spirit. It is not possible by our own efforts. So, summary. We hamstring our sanctification if we dwell on the righteousness Christ imputes, a glorious doctrine, to the minimizing of the righteous living Christ still commands and requires. And vice versa for some of us We hamstring our sanctification if we dwell on the righteous living and commands that God requires with the minimizing of the righteousness that Christ imputes. So delight in what God has done and double down on what God still wants to do. All right, there's our introduction. Here we go in verse 5. Let's begin to peel away these truths. First thing God calls us to when he turns from, we're going to appear with him in glory. Such You're just sitting there smiling at the end of verse 4. Like what a beautiful picture. And then he turns and begins to talk about the bad stuff that's still in us. Interestingly, God doesn't use the word sin here. In fact, sin only appears once in Colossians. Verse 14 of chapter 1, that he has forgiven our sins. God just uses a synonym, a similar word, a like thought, and I'm going to argue that he this in a number of different places in the New Testament. I really think in verse 5 that impurity, which is a very general word, passion and evil desire all are really capturing. Well, so is sexual immorality and covetousness and idolatry, but those are maybe more specific areas of our lives, and we'll talk about those, Lord willing, in the next Sunday or two. But we start with just what is earthly, and you can see there from all kinds of places all the different ways that God kind of words gives us some kind of imagery for picturing the evil that still resides within us. So many words that drive home the huge problem the huge matter of our remaining propensity to sin against God, despite all he has done. It's the most horrible part of us. God makes it clear though that getting rid of this is no easy task. Sin or what's earthly in us fights. It is ruthless. It has a million lives, far more than cats do. And it tries over and over and over incessantly through all of our lives to regain control of us. So, all kinds of passages. Peter talked about it. The passions of your flesh wage war. James talked about it. Paul talked about it in Galatians 5. Paul really captured it in Romans 7. I delight in the law of God. I love his commandments in my inner being, my spirit. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So that he feels that tension. Lots more in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that we could unpack there. But simply to say now that that's what we're putting to death. And just a few moments to unpack that a little bit more. Asking God to help us feel and see more of its evil poison because it is so, so, so deceptive. John MacArthur defines it this way. Sin, or we could say what is earthly in us, tramples on God's laws, makes light of his love, grieves his spirit, spurns his forgiveness, and in every way resists his grace. John Piper, Mr. Wordy, Came up with a longer list, and I'm not sure I'll read all of this. It'll be in the email, but I just wanted you to see all the different attributes of God, nature of God, ways that God is, and ways that our earth, what is still earthly in us, goes against that. And then Charles Spurgeon, I hate sin, not because it damns me, though it does if I'm not in Christ, but because it has done thee wrong. God. To have grieved my God is the worst grief to me. What I appreciate about all three of those men's definitions is that they make it about God and the offensiveness of our sin and what's earthly in us toward God. It shows us that sin is no small matter but goes so wickedly against our God who has been so good. So yes, sin is awful to us. Tim Keller calls it the suicidal action of the heart against itself. D.A. Carson unpacking a little bit more. Sin is painfully complex, twisted, wretched, deceitful, sometimes violent. Like the grave, it always yearns for more. If we take what the Bible says seriously, though, sin should never surprise us. But it should constantly horrify us. The more clearly we see sin's horror, the more we treasure the cross. That's what I really want to press about verses 5 to 8. So short, we can just read over it in seconds. But the more intensely we feel the sinfulness, the wickedness, the evil of our sin, what's earthly in us, the more we will seek Christ and the things above to fully exterminate them from our hearts. And the less we grasp and see how sinful we are, because our sin is so deceptive, blinds us so much, the less necessary Christ will seem and the less appealing he is. So ask God as we study this to help you not only know this intellectually, you probably already do, but to feel more in your heart. The corruption that is still there, the vastness of it, the power of it, and the deception of it. Those will be in the conclusion as well. Lots more that we could unpack. Let's keep going and now look at the opening words of verse 5. That's what we are called by God to put to death. In other words, God demands that we're not to freely go on letting sin live within us, but we are to be actively opposing and working against it. Just as Jesus said to the adulterous woman, neither do I condemn you, go. And here's what my command, from now on, sin no more. Don't go back into that sin. Move on, let forgiveness and non-condemnation free you to walk in righteousness. Sin isn't less bad for believers. It actually is far worse. Believers should never think that because God is willing to forgive our sin, he is okay with our sin. Followers of Christ want to forsake their sin as much as they want God to forgive their sin. Only now, with a greater motivation, Christ, and a greater power to overcome it. Sin is what put Christ to death. Then he put it to death. And now he calls us to join him in putting our own personal sins to death. God's call for death here, I think, is captured perhaps. I'm trying to give you a bunch of definitions here or ways to think about this. Uh, Like, how do you kill a sin? What does that exactly entail? And how do you know it's dead? So think of extermination perhaps, which by definition is killing a whole host of something that you don't like, that you don't want, that is destructive, but the goal is to wipe out all, get every single one of it out of there in whatever way, whether it's cancer in our body, or termites in our home, or whatever it might be. It's putting it to death or mortifying. It's eradicating it out of our heart so it doesn't continue to live in those caves. It's no longer allowing sin to comfortably just keep on being in our hearts, And all that's really changed in our lives is now we say we have Jesus, but sin just continues to have dominance in us. It's no longer to be a part of our lives. It's no longer welcome. It's no longer okay. We are going to war against it. We are considering ourselves dead to those desires because God has given us an infinitely more satisfying desire. Spurgeon summarized it this way. If you do not die to sin, you shall die for sin. For your sin, if you do not slay sin, it will slay you. David Garland, we are either dead in sin, or we are dead to sin. So this call is repeated throughout Scripture. Because of time, we're going to go relatively quickly. Again, they'll be in the email uh, for you who want to just consider more this call. But very quickly, Galatians five twenty four, which we already noted. It declares it as an already done act. You have crucified the flesh, but it's the idea of finish the execution. The sin is hanging there, crucifying on the cross, being crucified on the cross. It's on its way to being absolutely, utterly dead and gone. For now, break its legs, stick the spear in its side, do all you can to finish crucifixion in full. Three truths from Romans 6, and there's lots more. This is like boiled-down Reader's Digest nuggets. Verses 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means! Exclamation point. How? How, Paul asks, can we who died to sin with Christ at salvation just continue to live in it? Four verses later, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. There's a way to think of it. Like it's just reduced, 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 so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. Verses 11 and 12. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Let, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Romans 8.13 also calls us to put to death by the Spirit That's a thought we'll come back to in closing in a few moments. And then John, in 1 John, probably wrote the most piercing uh, message about this. First of all, he said in chapter 2, after proclaiming the forgiveness of our sins, 1 John 1, 9, I've written this to you so you may not sin. Like, that's the goal. And then later in the letter in the middle of it, he inserts by God's spirit these truths. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That's what sin or what is earthly is, is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sin. That's one glorious truth. And a second glorious thing, in him there is no sin. So back to the issue. No one who abides in him just keeps on sinning if it's no big deal. No one just keeps on sinning without battling it, without fighting, without seeking to repent and turn. If you're not, you have neither seen him nor known him. Don't let anybody deceive you about that. And then I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Here's why. God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. Here's why. Because he's been born of God. So perhaps a well-known quote to you, Uh, It is to many from the Puritans, of course, because they address this matter so well, so thoroughly. Use sin, Richard Baxter, use sin as it will use you. In other words, treat sin like it treats you, like a piece of garbage. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. Lots more to say here. We'll bring this to a close with, I hope, coming Sundays to continue to think through all of this as we look at these specific sins. Four closing thoughts. Number one, keys to killing. Don't underestimate how important your sanctification is to Christ. And, could have made it a separate point, how important the gospel is your sanctification much more to come on this this is where I thought I was going to land today I drew back the lens a little bit went a little wider but we will try to bring the gospel to bear on all of these commands Uh, pray for your pastor to be faithful in that but I want to urge you also to think that way whenever you hear a command reminders here God cares as deeply for our sanctification as he does for our salvation What Christ has done that the gospel tells us saves us, he has done also so that it sanctifies us. We need the gospel as much for our sanctification as we do for our uh, salvation. Just as Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, unto salvation, so we can also say equally, I must not forget the gospel, for it's the power of sanctification. We can't be saved apart from Christ, nor can we be sanctified apart from Christ. And any ways in which we're not realizing this is crippling our sanctification significantly. Secondly, don't underestimate the power of what's still earthly in you. Four things that just came to my mind in thinking about this. There's far more that we could list here. It's utter Wickedness. Boy, does it deceive us about that. Its vastness. Picture a beautiful manicured lawn filled with dandelions. Its power and its ability to deceive you still. Third, don't overestimate your own strength to fulfill such a massive undertaking that God has given us. God does call for our effort, but we're fools if we only try to do it by our own will and willpower and discipline. Jesus put it this way to his three closest friends, his three most loyal followers, the three he took most intimately with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and taught us an incredible principle. Your spirit is willing. While you're sitting in the pew, your spirit may be really willing. You may start each day with a spirit that's really willing, but the flesh, our own strength, apart from Christ, is so, so weak, far weaker than we realize If you don't fight your sin in the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit and remember that the Holy Spirit is also identified as the Spirit of Christ so we're we're not parsing this out. All of the Godhead is involved in our sanctification. If you don't fight in their power through prayer through the word. How can a young man keep his way pure? I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. And both of those, with faith and dependence, trust, you won't make real headway in the battle. And fourth and finally, don't underestimate the power Christ provides by uniting us to himself. Galatians 5, 7 is a pretty startling truth, but a great one. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify. He'll kill it. He'll kill it. The same power of God to raise Christ from the dead and to raise us from spiritual death now empowers us to carry out these commands. Verses 3 1 through 4 give us the call. Stare at and focus and fix your gaze on the glories of the above, the sin killing Christ, what he has done, what he is doing because of sin and what he will ultimately do. And the more vividly you grasp that heavenly glory, the more repulsed and sickened you become by what is still earthly in you. And here's the beauty. God is not a spectator up there sitting in his little, uh, what was my adjective, pampered palace, yelling from the stands, try harder, try harder, you can do it. I always laugh at football games when the fans yell, when their team's on defense, tackle. Well, what else are they doing? Like tackle. God's not just yelling from the sideline. He's put you in himself, and he's put himself in you, a fully engaged general. And I've shared this before, but I, this, this picture that John Piper uh, penned, I think in 2011, is just such a vivid closing picture of this battle. He says, picture your flesh, that old ego. Picture it as a dragon living in some cave of your soul. Then you hear the gospel, and in it, Jesus Christ comes to you and says, I will make you mine and take possession of the cave and slay the dragon. Will you yield to my possession? It will mean a whole new way of thinking and feeling and acting. And you say, but the dragon is me. I will die. And he says and you will rise to newness of life, for I will take its its plan. Does that say right? Place. I will make my mind and my will and my heart your own. And you say, what must I do? And he answers, and this is huge. Trust me and do as I say. As long as you trust me, we cannot lose. Overcome by the beauty and the power, love those two words, of Christ, you bow and swear eternal loyalty and trust. And as you rise, he puts a great sword in your hand and says, follow me. And he leads you to the mouth of one of the caves and says, go in and slay that dragon. But you look at him bewildered. I cannot, not without you. And he smiles and says, well said, you learn quickly. Never forget, here's a great line. My commands for you to do something are never commands to do it alone. Then you enter the cave, love this word, together. A horrible battle follows and you feel Christ's hand on yours. At last the dragon lies limp and you ask, is it dead? And his answer is, I have come to give you new life, the life you received when you yielded to my possession and swore faith and loyalty to me. And now with my sword and my hand, you have felled the dragon of the flesh. My sword, my hand. It is a mortal wound. It will die, that is certain, but it is not yet bled to death. And it may yet revive with violent convulsions and do much harm. So you must treat it as dead and seal the cave as a tomb. Have this confidence, With my sword and my hand on yours, the dragon's doom is sure, he is finished, and your new life is secure. Christ has taken possession of your soul. Our old self has been dealt a mortal wound and stripped of its power to have dominion. Summary statement, the Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit, is a constant reckoning of the flesh as dead and piling stones on its tomb, and a constant relying on the present Spirit of Christ to produce love, joy, all the things that three verses one to four describe of the things above the love joy and peace that we will ultimately enjoy for all of eternity so lord we've just begun to dig into this but i pray that you will take these thoughts and that they will bear much fruit in our lives that it will lead to all of us more vigilantly in your power and strength and spirit and word slay the dragon that yet lives in our caves we ask this Not simply so we'll feel better about ourselves, but so that our lives will more reflect our holy God. We pray in your name. Amen.